0: All right, then, to get the brain juices flowing, if we uh, move on into our confession, we're in chapter 8, verse 10, but I don't want to cut short the Q&A that we started last week about the sermon series, so I'm more than happy to have discussion on that, if there's more discussion to be had uh, on any of that, or the topics pertaining to it, um, and if not, no need to belabor it, then we'll move on to the discussion in our... Confession. So before we get started, I will ask if we have anyone who is willing or uh, able to open up in prayer. And if I don't see anyone, then I will volunteer Rob. All right, so before we just jump into the confession, is there more discussion from, uh, from the series, from last week, what we discussed about biblical masculinity, biblical femininity, that type of stuff? Going once, going twice, all right. And you're free to interrupt if something comes to your mind later on. Then, let's move in our confessions. Page 26. We're on chapter 8, section number 10. And this is the last section on Christ the Mediator. And if you're visiting here, there are some confessions in the back. And also the, the August table talks are in. So if you are using those, gladly grab uh, table talk devotional for next month. All right, chapter 8, section 10. The number and character of these offices is essential. Because we are ignorant, we need his prophetic office. Because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable. Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God, and so that we may be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies, We need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. All right, so again, we've discussed a number of times as we've gone along here, the three offices of Christ, and it's mentioned them here, and again, eyes up, what are Christ's three offices? Prophet, priest, and king, right? Okay, and there's, there's a hymn that, if ever you're in doubt of what those offices are, crown him, crown him, sing of his excellent greatness, there's a reference there to prophet and priest and king, are the three offices of Christ. And here, this section lays out why each office is so essential. Okay, and we'll work through it one by one. The number and character of these offices is essential. Because we are ignorant, we need his prophetic office. And who wants to read John 1.18 on there? Brooklyn. Okay. So, Brooklyn, how do we know God? He reveals himself to us, and the climax of that revelation is in Christ, right? So, in, uh, in that sense, Christ is the true prophet. Now, do we need or do we have prophets after Christ? Hint: This is a controversial question that really shouldn't be controversial at all. <laughs> do we have prophets or do we need prophets after the appearing of Christ? We do not. Okay? What more would there be to show? What more is there uh, once we have had God come in the flesh? What more do we need? And I know this is contested in our time, but historically this really isn't a very contested point. I made reference a number of weeks ago to novelty in Christian doctrine, um, and this is something that appears here and there. There's an early church heresy called Montanism, uh, which involves uh, people getting special direct revelations from God. Um, but really, this hasn't been an accepted thing. It's very accepted in our day, and I think the roots of our modern charismatic movement go back to the city of Los Angeles in 1906 or 1907. Something called the Azusa Street Revival, where there was uh, a number of people at a prayer meeting on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, and they started to claim that they could raise people from the dead and do these spontaneous miracles. And that was the birth of the modern charismatic movement they started to claim tongues and so forth as though we were uh, back in apostolic times Um, but that is a novelty that is not historic Christian uh, doctrine nor do I think should it be but it's no surprise to say the charismatic movement has a very large share of evangelicalism today and I don't know what it would be Uh, but significant anyway people claiming to to get direct revelation or you have people that have you know so-called healing ministries and so forth um and again we're not dealing with classical christianity or biblical christianity uh, i think when we're dealing with those things so christ's prophetic office is terminal all these offices are terminal that means they wrap up in christ he fulfills them he completes them he perfects them he's all we need now so we don't have prophets in the church today Okay, it, just like we don't have priests and kings in the church uh, today. Anything else? And we again, some of this is recap. Anything else on the prophetic office of Christ? Does it make sense that these offices are terminal, that they end in Christ, or does that still seem really weird in the time that we're living in? That these offices would terminate. Keith. different types of prophets? Okay, okay, I was going to say different types of prophets, well, true ones and false ones. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, okay, so can we still say that something is prophetic today? And I think if we define it properly, yes, we can. So uh, the prophetic gifting, what the prophet did in the Old Testament uh, wasn't just foretelling, it often involved that, but often it was also just an ability to call people to repentance, a certain kind of courage uh, to speak truth to a certain situation or matter. And so in that sense, is the prophetic gift in that sense still operative, that people are still called to be bold, to take a courageous stand, to speak truth amid lies? Well, yes, clearly that must be uh, for all times. Of course, that won't be needed once Christ returns. But in that sense, yes. Yes in the sense of direct, authoritative, inerrant revelation from God, if the prophetic gift was still happening in that sense, in the revelatory sense, the canon is not closed. If God is still giving authoritative revelation to prophets today, this book needs to get amended every, well, really, every so often, every time that that, that happens. So the canon is closed, direct revelation is terminated in Christ, uh, but the prophetic gifting or the prophetic i don't know what you'd want to call it the prophetic mandate in the sense of speaking truth is for all time so if that's the way we define it then we don't have a problem yeah i'm i'm talking in terms of direct revelation yes and it is a helpful distinction yes yeah no that's fair totally good We have discussed this. I don't want to belabor it. More discussion on this. Keep moving. God told me we should keep going, so let's go. (laughs) I've just Because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable. And here we have two texts. Who wants to take Colossians one twenty one, Dave. Who wants to take Galatians 5.17? Oh, boy, there's a race here. Kenan. Kenan was first. All right. Colossians 1. Go ahead, Dave. Okay. So we are reconciled, and Colossians talks often about uh, reconciliation, right, and Christ is reconciling all things, Uh, and this is a priestly work, to take things to God on behalf of the people uh, that forgiveness and atonement uh, can happen. And then Galatians 5.17 So again, in this priestly office, there's, well, and it goes on later on here to talk about the, the work of the Spirit in influencing us, in turning our heart, giving us correct desires, uh, and that too is a kind of intercessory uh, kind of work. Okay, so on this, um, the, the discussion came up a few weeks ago, Marina brought up a question, I'm not sure if Marina's here, I don't see her. She brought up a question a few weeks ago that I answered here, but then we discussed it in private, and I didn't really understand her question properly. So it had to do with this, and it had to do particularly with um, the once-for-all nature of Christ's atonement and uh, the nature of sacrifices in the Old Testament. So uh, I'll try to rehash it here. Uh, her and me talked about it, but if if I misunderstood it for her, I maybe spoke poorly of it for the rest of you as well. Were the blood sacrifices instituted in the Old Testament, were they commanded by God? So were they necessary? Yes, they were. Okay. Did the blood sacrifices actually remove guilt? This is important. Did they actually remove guilt? No, because what does Hebrew say? The blood of bulls and goats can never remove sin. Okay? They were impotent to remove sin. So even when God forgave and justified people in the Old Testament, it was not because of blood sacrifices. <laughs> it was because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Well, that's impossible because the finished work of Christ on the cross happened after uh, Moses and Abram were long dead. Okay? But it was still applied retroactively. I always use the analogy of a line of credit, uh, that as a farmer I can draw on my line of credit before the money goes in. Okay that's how Old Testament saints were justified is by faith uh, or by grace through faith in Christ even though they just saw a blurry picture of Christ but the blood sacrifices did nothing other than typologically teach the people about the Messiah to come and this is very important the blood sacrifices uh, in a spiritual sense of justification did absolutely nothing they were typological They were teaching the people what kind of a Messiah was going to come, that there was going to be a flawless lamb uh, who was going to be slain on their behalf, okay? But they were not saved any differently than me or you are saved. We just have a better picture of what's happening than Moses or Abraham did, which also seems weird because people that are nostalgic about yesteryear would say, oh, wouldn't it have been a great blessing to be Abram or to be Moses and to live in those days? Why? You know more about the gospel than Moses did. Okay? We know more about the gospel than Abram did. Why would we want to go back to types and shadows? Why would we want to go back to just seeing uh, dimly when we have a much more clear picture? Okay? But again, those signs, those sacrifices were typological. They did not remove sin, and we know that from Hebrews, it explicitly uh, states that, and I maybe wasn't clear enough on that, um, when talking about the sacrifices were necessary, because God commanded them, so there is a legal obligation to do them, but they did not, they were not the basis or the grounds of justification at any point, point. and I'm not sure if that makes sense, maybe I'm not explaining it any better now than I was before, but does that make sense? Okay, was anyone under the impression Uh, either from the way I spoke about it or from elsewhere, that the sacrifices did something in God, that they were the basis? Has anyone had that conception? Because I was taught as a kid, this is bad theology, I'm not advocating, I was taught as a kid the Old Testament saints were saved by works, but now in the New Testament we're saved by grace. That's bad theology. No one has ever been justified by works. It's always been by grace. It's just how much of the picture we see great question. Brooklyn's question is, did their obedience in carrying out those sacrifices demonstrate their faith in Christ? That's right. But but yes, I think you're onto something important there. Because, also, uh, is Brooklyn Dirksen justified by her obedience? No, she's not. Okay. Um, does your obedience show something about the disposition of your heart yeah it does okay so grace isn't an excuse to say, yeah i'm saved by grace i love sinning god loves forgiving this is wonderful okay that's someone who doesn't understand grace okay real grace makes a difference and so if god has given his grace to abram and to moses and to daniel we would expect they will obey imperfectly right sometimes seasons of setback or sin which we all have in this room um but basically, grace doesn't leave someone unchanged. Grace changes things. Grace changes your want-to's, it changes your desires. So I think yes, them them obediently following through with that system was a sign that God's grace had reached into their heart. More on that. We're very quiet this morning. I'll say something heretical yet, and then we'll see if you catch it. <laughs> What's that? If you want a good time, ask Don about his last Sunday. I wasn't there, but apparently it didn't go well. Okay, then let's keep moving. Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God, and so that we can be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. And here we've got three texts. Who wants to take John 16, verse 8? Tyson, who wants to take Psalm 110, 3? Caleb, I'll, you had your hand up second last time, so I'll give that one to you. And then Howard, Luke 1, and 75. Okay, so go ahead, Tyson. John 1, 18. Sixteen. What? No. Oh yeah, I'm looking. It's John. I'm looking at the first one there. John sixteen verse eight. My bad. Okay. So the Helper, the Paraclete, is going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay. So again, this is a kingly. Uh, feature is God protects his people. Okay? And we need that work. Can people do this on their own? Can people repent of sin on their own? Are people convicted of sin on their own? No? Do you just decide by an act of your will one day, I'm going to start hating sin? Yeah. Yeah. Well, then if it happens as an act of the will, it's like the parable of the the soil right pops up and it's the root of the matter is not in it yeah yeah no this must be a work of the spirit it must be um psalm 110:3 Is that Psalm 110.3? Yes, it is. I was looking at the wrong place, okay? And you know what? Actually, why don't you read, because we're talking about the kingly office, why don't you reread it, Caleb, starting at verse 1, and get the kingly impression here. So, your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power in holy garments. And again, how often is the gospel spoken of in terms of a covering? Right? Jesus has the parable of the wedding feast. And who? what's the, what's the test for whether you're in or not? Your wedding garments. You're covered in something, right? And, and it's given to you as a gift. Okay? The righteousness that God receives from us is not righteousness that we perform it's righteousness that we are covered with it's a wedding garment it's a covering okay that's why because it's a covering from Jesus righteousness being imputed onto us it's on that basis that when you sit in God's courtroom God says perfect this person is completely 100% righteous and they are allowed to be in my presence forever because they're perfect they're pure they're holy Uh, And that is imputed righteousness of Christ. And yes, it should and must uh, translate into our actual righteousness uh, as we imperfectly and slowly but surely become sanctified. Uh, But the righteousness that God accepts in justification is a garment. It's a covering uh, that he gives us. And because he is the judge and the giver, uh, this is a perfectly fitting arrangement that he would give us the thing that he demands of us. It's like, who's ever had it when your kids are small and they have really good wishes to get mom something for her birthday or for Christmas, so you give them 20 bucks, you drive them to the store, you help them pay for it, you wrap it for them, and then they give their gift to mom. Has anyone been in something like that? That's your salvation. That's your salvation. God, through the Spirit, working in you from start to last. Okay, so... Yes, you must have faith. Yes, you must be sanctified, but that's all gift. Dad's holding your hand and walking you through every last step of that so that you can give something. Okay, so God places conditions on your salvation, but then he also gives those conditions by grace. So it's grace from start to last. Does that make sense? That God meets the conditions for you, in you, through you? Why are we so quiet today? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and again, this is different ways of conceiving of grace. Because um, all Christians want to affirm grace. And I think many, maybe most, evangelicals today actually conceive of grace and Christ's intercession the same way that Roman Catholics did in the medieval time, at the time of the Reformation. Some would say evangelicals today are more works-based than Rome was at the time of the Reformation, and I don't actually think that's completely unfair. Uh, We're even more works-based. The view of grace that was offered from Roman Catholics, and I think many evangelicals hold this today, which was contrary to the view of the Reformers, was uh, Erasmus, who was kind of Martin Luther's Roman Catholic counterpart. The two of them were kind of equal intellects, and they exchanged cross swords quite frequently. Erasmus said, yes, I believe in God's grace. If there's an apple on the counter, and I want it, and I want to reach for it, but I can't get it, God's grace lifts me up so that I can get it. Okay, God's grace is a kind of assistance. It's help. Okay, Sounds good, right? We need to reach the apple. We need God's grace to help us. And Luther said, no, no, no. That's a terrible analogy. Because until God's grace gets a hold of you, you hate that apple. You resist it. You don't even want it. Okay? It is God's grace start to last. If you want the apple, that means God has already been giving you grace. And then he lifts you up. Okay? It is grace from start to finish. Um, And I've talked to in regards to Luther in the time of the Reformation where Uh, you know all these rules in the monastery that he was in and he was very scrupulous and his conscience was very tormented about this stuff and then his father confessor said well you know you're you're troubling yourself too much with these little laws just love God and try your best and Luther said that was an even bigger death sentence than following all the rules try my best if that is not a one-way ticket straight to hell for every last man woman and child then nothing is Has anyone in this room tried their best for more than about five or six seconds on end? Not one of us. Not one of us. Try your best is more condemning than a book of laws, okay? You could theoretically follow a book of laws. You cannot. You will not. You do not try your best for any sustained period of time, okay? So this is not try your best and then God will top it up with grace. This is grace from first to last. This is grace at the level of your desires. This is grace at the level of forgiveness when uh, when we do wrong. So it it is all of grace from a kingly uh, God who is keeping his people safe and secure and walking us uh, in holiness in his kingdom. Can you see different... And I'll throw this out for discussion. Can you see different views of grace? Can we say it's it, it would be unfair to say, well... Evangelicals believe in grace and Roman Catholics believe in works? That that's actually a slander. That's a lie. Roman Catholics love grace, but it's grace plus. And I think it's grace plus for most evangelicals too. Is my guess. But I don't know. I throw that open. Do we do we adequately conceive of grace in evangelical churches today on the whole? Is it a top up or is it first to last? I think there's a lot of that. And then and then well I'll, I'll let some more speak before I jump on that. If you didn't hear Don he said a lot of preaching a lot of evangelical emphasis becomes steps or techniques. Right? 5 easy steps to this. Um, and it can get really bad, right? The story of David and Goliath becomes about you. Right? and you need the five smooth stones of financial stewardship and, you know, having your squad behind you to help you achieve your life goals. And, but is the story about David and Goliath about you? No, it's not. It's about Christ. See, this, this leads to a different way to read your Bible uh, completely. We'll either read it in terms of Christ being the controlling theme or of you being the center of the Bible, right? Dare to be Daniel. Okay, well, is Daniel a story about you? No. Can we learn courage from Daniel? Yeah, sure we can. But is it a story about you? No, it is not. It's not. So we need to read those stories in light of Christ, where these stories are pointed. And then lastly, Luke 1, 74 and seventy five. Okay. There, I'm finally caught up to you. Okay, so we're delivered from the hand of our enemies, and isn't that a constant theme in Scripture? Especially if you read the Psalms. We're going to be doing some Psalms later on this summer. There's so much there where the King himself has to plead for God's protection and God's help and God's safety. Uh, and that is fitting that a King would write this and make that appeal to a King above himself. Right? David himself has to appeal to a king above him for safety uh, and protection. Okay? Uh, and that is the kingly office of Christ. He convinces us, so he works at the level of our hearts, our affections. He subdues, okay? so he restrains us when we're sinning. Through his spirit, he draws us, he sustains us, he delivers us, and he perseveres us for his heavenly kingdom and this is the work of a king and christ is a king he is the final king okay so again um just like we don't have prophets in the revelatory you know canonical kind of sense anymore uh do we have priests offering sacrifices today are there priests in the church today are there priests in the church today Okay. Do some Christians call their pastors priest? <laughs> yes, they do. And it's, it actually fits because there is a bit of a misguided theology behind it because in the, in the Catholic Mass, there is an ongoing sacrifice. The Mass becomes a sacrifice, so it's actually fitting that they call their pastors priest. Uh, but we resist that language because your pastors can't do things for you. <laughs> they can lead you. They can teach you. Uh, but we're not offering sacrifice to God. Christ sacrifices once... Uh, and for all. And again, lastly, do we have kings in the church today? Do you get to crown one man to be head of the church on earth? No. Do some Christians do something like that? Yeah? Yeah. What's that man called? The Pope. Yep, Papa. The Bishop of Rome. Okay. Uh, and Anglicans do something similar, not quite, but they have an archbishop. Uh, and who is actually, who is the head of the Anglican Church? The crowned head, yeah, the crowned head is the, is the king or queen of the church, the head of the church, and that usually works out really good, right? If you have an unregenerate head of the church, <laughs> someone who's not even a Christian is head of the church, and frankly, I would have far rather had Queen Elizabeth than any of the archbishops that have been in my lifetime. I trust her theological judgment more than Justin Welby or Rowan Williams. Um, but there are practices like this that have persisted, but I think it 's misguided we don 't have one crowned head as uh, as supreme ruler of the church today. okay We have a plurality of ordinary, boring elders, okay and that 's good. just ordinary men, nothing special so we 'll close it off there. Does that? That's it for that section. Any more discussion before we move on? We've got 15 minutes, so we might start on the next one here. Questions on Christ the Mediator. That was a big section that we just polished off now. I don't know how many weeks we took on it, but quite a few. More discussion on this? Ray. Amen. That's all God's action there, right? 100%. Amen. Anything else? Okay. Then let's move on to section 9. Let's see how far we get in section 1 here, chapter 9, free will. And this is the natural this confession works in very logical order so now everyone's thinking and we've discussed this before so maybe you're not thinking this if this is all of God if it's grace from first to last well what about me am I involved in this at all or am I just a passive participant so how does that work where does my will come in and to what degree is our will free so it says here God has endowed human free will or human will with natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. and we've got three texts there. Who wants to take Matthew 1712 Jolynn. who wants to take James 114? Tyson. And then lastly Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. Caleb. okay, so Matthew 1712. Okay, thanks, Jolyn. So there's lots of passages like that. I always think of the one in Acts that this Christ, who was crucified by the hands of lawless men, okay, there's, there's lots of things like this. Or in regards to Judas, uh, Jesus says, The Son of Man goes exactly as it is written of him in the Scriptures, yet woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better if he had never been born. Okay? So we always see two things there. None of this is happening outside of God's providential control. And yet humans actually do make choices. We make choices a million times a day. And some, some of them we think about. Most of them we don't think about. Most of the choices you make are just natural. You don't even think about it. I prefer an aisle seat. I prefer a center seat. I prefer cold water. I prefer lukewarm water. And you don't even think about it. But you're making choices hundreds of times a day. And you'll notice there's actually no external compulsion on almost any of them, right? Sometimes someone may limit your options, but almost always you just do exactly what you want, okay? And so some of our Christian brothers and sisters say, see, well, there you go. We, we have a free will. Our will is free. Uh, therefore, I am in charge of my own salvation. Uh, and those of us who follow in the lines of reformational theology say, well, that's actually the problem. We have just addressed the problem. We do do what we want. And that's a major problem. We do what we want, and our hearts are wicked. Okay, We can't will our way out of this situation. We can't decide to change our affections. When we choose, we're choosing according to what we desire. But follow this closely. No one in this room has ever decided to change their desires. You choose according to your desires, but you don't change your desires. If your desires change, that's because the Holy Spirit has been working in you. We choose according to our desires. I never decided that tomatoes were inedible. That's just a brute fact of nature. (laughs) And I never decided I like ice cream. I never decided that. Those desires are just native to me, and I choose accordingly. If you invited me to your house and you put down a bowl of tomatoes and a bowl of ice cream, I can tell you one bowl would be empty and one would not. I'm choosing according to my desires, but those desires were never something I chose. Okay, This is so important and I keep coming back to it on multiple levels because if our theology is defective here and we're going to be consistent with it, we have to cave in to the demands of people who say, I was born this way whether that's about same-sex desire, whether that's about minor attracted persons, I was, you know, as long as I remember I've been attracted, it doesn't matter. It's wrong. Okay. Your desires are wrong. Just because you always remember being that way doesn't mean it's nat. It might be natural in the sense it feels natural to you. Uh, but if we're conceived in sin, does it make sense that as long as you remember you've desired sinful things? Does that make sense? Okay. I was born this way is not an excuse for anything. It's not. Your, your desires are corrupt from the moment of conception. Okay? And apart from the grace of God, they will remain corrupt. So we are doing what we want. We are doing what we want. And Jesus says that in exactly this passage here. Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Were these people under compulsion? Did these people want to obey Elijah who in the New Testament iteration is John the Baptist, okay? Did they desire to listen to him, but then God in his providence kept them away against their wishes, right? He put this force field uh, around them and, and just moved them against their desires. Is that how it works? Is that how it works? No. They did what they wanted. They're conceived as God-haters. Don't be surprised when they act like God-haters, okay? Okay? And that's all of us. That's all of us. James 1.14, who had that one? Okay, so the devil made me do it, right, Tyson? No, God made me do it. No, who made me do it? Me, I'm the problem. I'm the problem, okay? As is always the case, I'm the problem. You're the problem. We can't blame other people. We can't blame our circumstances. We can't blame our upbringing. We can't blame the devil. We can't blame God. We do it. You're lured by sin. You give it a second thought. You take the bait. You start rolling it over in your head, and then your actions start to flow, okay? And that's the progress that James lays out for sin in James 1. So we cannot hide, and I'm not denying here that we're shaped by experiences and people around us, uh, but that doesn't give license, that doesn't give permission. If your dad was an angry drunk and you say, well, I'm going to be an angry drunk because my dad was and I'm kind of helpless in this situation, so I'm just going to be like my dad, it might explain how you might be like your dad, but does that give you permission to be like him? No, you have no permission to be like him. Might it feel natural to be just like your dad? Yeah, that might feel very natural. And if dad was angry, there's probably a lot of anger in you, right? It's probably going to feel very natural for that anger to come out once you're in a position of power over someone else. But you don't have permission. It's not okay, okay? And again, this does absolutely apply to sexual desire as well. It's not okay just because you always remember being born that way it's not okay, okay? Discussion on that. Does it make sense that the best explanation of free will is that we choose what we want to choose? Okay, does that make sense? Okay, the other view of free will is that we can do anything. I can equally choose A or non-A, and that is what I think most people mean when they talk about free will, I can choose anything. I can equally choose A or B. But there's several problems with that, and we've discussed it here before too. One of the problems with that is, could you ever choose? If your will can equally be turned either direction, would you ever make a choice? You would never make a choice. You'd never make a choice. This is the uh, the donkey that Luther talks about that starves to death when there's a bucket of oats and a bucket of hay in front of it, it will starve to death if it had free will in that sense because it could never, ever choose. There's nothing that desires one or the other. Further, if that is how free will worked, that we could choose anything, how could God hold you accountable for your decisions? Because your decisions would just be a random, spontaneous event that may or may not be tied to the desires of your heart. The reformational Calvinistic answer here, I think, must be the right one both because that's what scripture teaches and because philosophically Arminianism makes absolutely no sense. How could God hold you for a, accountable for a decision that does not reflect who you are as a person? And we would get honor for choosing Christ, yes, that's right. It would be 99% grace and the, the decisive 1% is, is you, yes, yep. there was another hand here. Okay. Because well he holds us accountable because that's actually my desire. That If I'm a Christian, he then he has changed my desire. If I'm remaining in sin, he has not changed my desire. He's left me alone. Because those desires are native to me. It's actually me. It's actually me wanting those things. Who put uh, put it there? The sinful desire is a result. I'd say it's a curse as a result of the fall. And we don't know what we can't explain, at least that I've never satisfactorily explained, is how Adam committed that first sin. But ever since then, because he is our covenantal head, we were all there sinning with him. Howard and Matt were with Adam grabbing the fruit. We fell with him. uh, and so the curse on him comes to me and you as his sons. So the, the curse is is on us. We really we really own our sinful desires. And unless or until God makes us new, that is what we desire. But how did, that, how did that first sin cause that? I have never yet heard a satisfactory explanation. And no one can answer it, no matter your theological tradition. I, I'm yet to hear an answer. It can't be libertarian free will there either. It can't be, because then Adam's choice is meaningless. But how could somebody desire something sinful in an unfallen creation... I don't know, but we know that it did happen, and God could have stopped at any point along the way, and he didn't, but beyond that, I I have no answer, other than I can get you to read that Gordon Clark book again, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) Keep, keep, keep reading, keep reading Gordon Clark's God and evil until you get it that you, we won't get it, yeah, yeah. Because it's you choosing. But it's you choosing according to your new desire. God doesn't have faith for us. God renews the heart so that we do have faith. He gives us the gift of faith. But it is you acting on that faith. It's your faith. Okay? Um, When I left home and I graduated high school... My dad gave me a S10 truck. He gave it to me. Could you say, well, no, that's not yours, Matt. You got it as a gift. No, it is mine because I got it as a gift. It it is my possession now, right? When we give somebody a gift, it's actually theirs. Right? So if God gives the gift of faith, it's their faith. It got there as a gift, but you're actually in possession of it. So there's nothing contrary about having a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation and saying that we chose or that we exercise faith. We have to, okay? You won't be saved unless or until you do exercise faith. The question is further back. How did that faith get there? Did we gin it up or did we get it as gift? But regardless of your understanding of free will, all evangelical Christians agree you must have faith to be saved. No one's saved apart from faith. How did the faith get there? Did you work it up or did you receive it as part of the package of salvation is the question that, that ends up getting debated here. Okay? And so our understanding of free will is people do what they want. And God has to change the heart for us to want the right things, for us to come to him. But it's really us. There's not a force field around us going against our will. We're doing what we want at all times. Lisa. So you're just sitting passively. I think I I understand. Yeah, so can you use that as an excuse? Okay, so could Pharaoh use it as an excuse that God hardened him? Right? Part of the hardening... Here's how this works... Part of the hardening is God gives you more freedom. That is what it means to be hardened or cursed by God. God gives you more free reign to be more like you. So when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, God is not planting evil in Pharaoh's heart. He's saying, okay, Pharaoh, be more Pharaoh. I'm I'm going to remove the limitations that I've placed on your freedom to hate me. And the more freedom you get, the more hardened you become. The more you hate me, the more freedom I give you. But the origin of that evil is Pharaoh's own heart so we can't use God not giving us grace as an excuse for sin or for unbelief because we're commanded to have faith but then it comes from God. and it comes from God yeah okay and there's not there's not a contradiction there uh, we're commanded to do lots of things God, Jesus says be perfect as I'm perfect can you do that no, you can't. Can you by grace? By grace, yes, you, you, you can be covered. Okay? But there's, uh, there's lots of things that we ought to do that we can't in our own strength. Right? And, and even, let's say, limitations on our physical body. Your body was designed to live forever. And it won't. Not in its current form. But it ought to. But because of the curse, it won't. Right? Because of the curse, we don't want to come to faith even though we're commanded, right? And the the gospel isn't just an invitation, it's a command. God commands all people now everywhere to repent. And so we're all accountable to that. We all ought to do that, and we're morally responsible to do it. But the fact that it takes a supernatural working of grace to get us to that point shows us just how hard we are, right? It shows us how hard, what a difficult case each of us is that it requires that grace. And if somebody knows enough to say, well, it's all on grace, and I'm just going to stay here in my unbelief as a sin, that person is especially hardened. I think that's the person in Hebrews 10 that knows the right things. They've been taught the right things. They have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. That person is in more danger, I think, than the person who just doesn't care at all. The person who knows better to hide behind that as an excuse. Uh, well, I, I do believe it is the person in that warning passage. They know better. But they're, they enjoy their sin too much to come. So they stay put. And I'm not sure if, that, if I'm understanding completely what you're saying. Yeah, coming from an that's very much what was yes. And hyper-Calvinism is as cancerous as... Pelagianism is in that in that sense it really sends people in a helpless direction um, to, to just say well okay I, I'll just do nothing um, Calvinism as understood at the time of the Reformation as understood in evangelical faith true evangelical faith is uh, you have to do this you have to have faith you go out you preach the gospel you invite people to come uh, you even tell them God commands you to come um, but we don't have strings on their hearts that we can cause something to happen or not those who do come come by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, those who don't and make excuses uh, they love their sin and they don't they don't want that to happen okay so it's it, it's evidence that their heart has not changed I would say it's just an especially callous, kind of theological way to dodge it um, C.S. Lewis says that the worst kind of bad man is a religious bad man And I think that's right. The most evil people in the world are religious evil people because they're using their Bible knowledge as a, as a dodge. And we need to pray for those people and we need to get the gospel to them. But we should never use our theology as a dodge to get out of accountability to God. We have to repent. You must. God commands it. God commands it. Anything else on this? It's past quarter after, so we should probably bring it in for a landing but I don't want to cut it short. We'll have to pick this up next week because we didn't get through the text. Anything more before we close it down? Okay. So, summary. God, Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And the best explanation of human free will is that you choose what you want to. In fact, you must. And catalog all the decisions you've made in your life and I promise you every last one is what you wanted to do. Every last one. Even when there's competing desires. And I will point, I'll take this as I fought this for several years and I've, I've sometimes talked about a relative who kept going another round with me um, showing me that my theology was defective and he showed me John 6 and John 10 and John 17 and Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and finally I said okay uncle Uh, And Randy Brandt is here sitting beside my Uncle Steve today, so Randy is largely at fault for (laughs) a lot of what you just heard in a secondary sense. (laughs) Scripture and logic are difficult things. (laughs) All right, let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to uh, thank you for your word i want to thank you for this group of people i want to thank you uh for the ability to gather together to look at scripture to discuss things uh to think things through uh to challenge our own assumptions as needed lord and i pray that in discussions like this that whatever has been spoken poorly or uh, wrongly that you would erase that from our memories and at the same time lord anything that is helpful anything that helps us to think deeper or more fully lord i pray that you would uh, you would press that deeper that we would be more thankful that you not only uh, command us to do certain things but then that you give us the grace necessary uh, to obey your commandments to carry it out and for those of us who know you lord i pray that we would be thankful that it is grace from first to last lord and as we think about others who don't know you in a saving way uh, or who don't fully appreciate the level of your grace lord i pray that we would be gracious as we interact with them uh, that the things we see in your word and the things we understand would not be cause for arrogance or for pride but rather that we would humbly help others to see uh, the graciousness of grace the amazingness of grace and that we would be thankful that it is you working in and through us from first to last lord i pray that you'd be with us as we go about the rest of our morning Uh, i pray that uh, that we would have our hearts ready to worship you uh, to receive grace from you this morning uh, and return it back to you with thankful hearts I pray for each one here this morning. Lord, whatever we're going through, whatever distractions there are, I pray that you would help us uh, to overcome that by your grace and that we would give you the reverence and the awe and the worship that you rightly deserve and that you would continue to work in us, building us into a people that uh, will honor and glorify you and that are a positive witness to those around us in the way we interact, the way we talk, and the way we live our lives. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Thank you for your mercy. Amen.